This is the Dennis Miller Option. Your source of opinions, stories, and laughs from comedian and inactivist Dennis Miller, his guy Friday Christian Blatt, and superstar producer Lindsay Floyd. And now, it's him, Dennis Miller. Hey folks, welcome to the uh, Dennis Miller Option. Just off the phone with the great Dana Carvey, just chatting. And I told him I was going to start a new podcast called Springing On You, where you talk with somebody on the phone for 10 minutes, and then you say, by the way, we've been on the podcast. And you <laughs> love it. Sort of get a candid thing. So write that down, Lindsay. Springing it on you with Dennis Miller. I got it. I got it. But we're not doing that to our guest. Too much respect for one of my, uh, my most professional peers, hysterical comedian, Mensch, great guy. So glad he's written this book because this is a life lived and I can't wait to get hold of it. I'm even going to buy this book on Kindle. Still standing, my journey from the streets and the saloons to the stage and Sinatra. This is the great Tom Dreesen. Tommy, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great. <laughs> I always get a kick out of, uh, you always call me a raconteur. And, 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 I, and for years... I misunderstood you. I thought you said I was a racketeer from Chicago, not a raconteur. <laughs> yeah, I will make sure I pronounce the N in the future. <laughs> you know, I was just looking over a book I had, and I had it on a bookshelf, and I pulled it down because I thought I want to talk to Tom. I want to do a little memory lane thing on Sinatra here. It's called Family Treasures or Sinatra Treasures. It's stuff released by his family. I'm sure you've seen it along the way, but it had the most amazing picture of him on the back cover where – it's uh, it must have been a quarter to three because there's people walking by him on the streets of Manhattan. And he's just sort of standing there like another guy. And I will get back to Sinatra, but I just do want to say that as I looked at that picture, I thought, boy, part of his charm is that he, they they think of him as a boy from the neighborhood that uh, that made well. You a boy from the neighborhood of Harvey who made uh, well. Tell me about Harvey, Illinois. Well, you know, by the way, I'm glad you said that about Frank. A lot of times people will say to me. You know, what did you guys talk about when you were alone in a car at five, six in the morning, stuff like that? And it was that the fact that, that uh, I was a kid from the neighborhood and so was he. And the great Frank Sinatra, some nights we were riding around, he wasn't Frank Sinatra. He all, once in a while would just become that kid from Hoboken. And we would talk about the streets and growing up and so forth and so on. He once said to a New York Times guy, the guy said, why do you keep Tom Dreesen with you? And Frank said, besides the fact that he's funny. And the guy said, yeah, besides that fact. He said, well. If I'm a saloon singer, and I am, then Tommy's a saloon comedian. By that, I mean, we're just a couple of neighborhood guys. And so that's the way I felt when I was with him alone, you know. And going back to Harvey, Harvey is a suburb on the south side of Chicago. When I was growing up, steel mills, factories, they made everything from clutch plates to crankshafts, taverns, 36 taverns, blue-collar people, hard-working people. The mantra in the neighborhood was, you only deserve in life what you work for. And uh, as a little boy, I had eight brothers and sisters. We lived in a shack. You know, at one time, five of us slept in one big bed and, um, you know, I, I had holes in my shoes. I, you know, I shined shoes in taverns. I set pins in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime. I sold newspapers all to help feed my brothers and sisters. None of this do I regret. But that was my beginning Wow. on my hands and knees in those saloons and hearing Frank Sinatra on the jukebox while I was shining those shoes. Well, uh, it would appear then that uh, Hef at the mansion was not the only person sleeping five to a bed in Chicago. <laughs> I, you know, Tom, it's uh, I often think, you know, 
sometimes people make it out that all comedians are clowns who are smiling but broken on the inside. I don't think it is like that, but I do find a lot of guys who are from a hard scrabble existence. And I, when you say that, five kids sleeping in a bed, and uh, I, I think your parents had their own uh, life issues, it does sort of steal you for the, for, I don't know, whenever a crowd turned on me. I always thought, boy, I've seen there's tougher stuff in life than this. Was that part of your thinking too? Yeah, well, you know, for me, I was a high school dropout. I, you know, I I went in the navy when I was 17. I ended up running with some bad guys, some real tough guys, and uh, and I and and nothing I'm proud of. I even wrote about that in the book, you know. And uh, you know, so I I I ended up going to the navy when I was 17, and and I got a high school diploma from the navy, and I started reading books. Because I came from this poor background, I, I started reading these books of, of positive mental attitude for all the way back from Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking, to mm-hmm. the, the Power of Your Subconscious Mind by Joseph Murphy. And I began to apply these sciences because I had every opportunity to end up in prison. I mean, I was a, a raggedy poor kid, and anybody who would have read my child, both parents were alcoholic at one time, that had read, read about my childhood, if I would went to jail, they'd have said, oh, it wasn't his fault. And I think that's BS. You know, and that's why I began trying to change my life from those negative, that negative background to framing a more positive background by reading those books. Mm-hmm. Today, I give motivation speeches at universities in corporate America on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. And, uh, and, and I elaborate on all four of those subjects. Go through those again, Tito. I want to hang my hat on those. I heard the sense of humor, but go through the first three again. Perception, visualization, self-talk and develop a sense of humor. Perception, all of life is about perception. It's how you perceive it, and I elaborate on that. Uh, visualization, whatever the mind can see and believe it will achieve, uh, it was written thousands of years ago. It's biblical in nature, and I teach them how to do that. And then uh, self-talk, the most important person you'll ever talk to is yourself. And there's a great book by Shad Helmsetter called the, uh, What to Say When You Talk to Yourself. And then s- develop a sense of humor, the greatest gift that God can bestow upon a human being is a sense of humor. And by my definition, a sense of humor is not when you have the ability to laugh at others' shortcomings or misfortunes. It's when you have the ability to laugh at your own. You can laugh at yourself and not take yourself too serious. Uh, when I was on Hollywood Scores one time, 3,500 women polled. The question was, what is the number one characteristic you look for in a man? And the answer was a sense of humor, the majority. Women like a guy who doesn't take himself too serious, who can make them laugh and laugh at themselves. We're talking to the great Tom Dreesen. And folks, the very definition of a mensch, uh, this cat has the funniest stories. And every time I've talked to him, he's laid wisdom on me. He's seen it all in his life. And the book, uh, trust me, this is one you want to read because some of these <laughs> some of these lives lived or chronicled, and you think they haven't even lived life. My man has still standing my journey from streets and saloons to stage and Sinatra. Now listen, Tommy, I don't think of you as a big, uh, you definitely weren't a big burly cat when you joined the Navy. It's so funny to me. I think of you in with those uh, rough cats in the Navy and you you are sort of a Maggio-like uh, guy. You were, must have been a bantam rooster, man, but were you a tough kid? Well, you know, I, I had I, nothing, um, and I put that in the book. I'm not proud of it. I had street fights. I had my nose broke twice. Uh, you know, uh, you know, so uh, nothing I'm proud of, but I, I'm candid in the book about those those things that I went through. And then in the service, when I was in the Navy, I also, uh, when I went to Quonset Point, Rhode Island, I was in a squadron called NAT-2 Naval Air Torpedo Unit, and I served with the Marine Corps unit for uh, nine months called NEGDF, Naval Emergency Ground Defense Force. And they 
kept their foot in my rear end for nine straight months. <laughs> and it makes you a, a bantam rooster. I boxed in when I was in the Navy too, three rounders, you know. So I was, I was a scrapper, you know, I, I was a kind of guy that I, I, I was compassionate as any human being, but I was tough when I had to be. And, and that's what you'd learn on the streets. Dennis, to digress, well, growing up in Harvey, no one ever saw, I never saw intellectual combat in my life. In, in Harvey, mm-hmm. whenever you argued, if you argued about the Cubs and the White Sox in a bar, they'd say, step outside. They'd all go out in the alley and the whole neighborhood would go watch these two guys fight. Mm-hmm. Everything in the pool rooms that I grew up in was solved by going out in the alley. Now, when I went in the service for the first time in my life, I saw intellectual combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was fascinated uh, by watching. I would watch these people. There was a black guy from Detroit and a, uh, and a redneck from North Carolina and a and a, and a, a, a Jewish kid from New York and an Italian kid from Chicago. And they'd get in these heated debates. And I think, oh, they're going to throw it down. But they wouldn't. At the end of the discussion, one guy might say, you know, I never thought of it that way. You've given me something to think about. And that fascinated me, intellectual combat, you know. Mm-hmm. What uh, a boxer! When I, you know, when I think of Tommy at one forty-five against Carmen Batbasilio in the Garden, he was a thing of beauty. <laughs> I know you know Frank Frank Sinatra's father was a boxer. He boxed under the name of Marty O'Brien. Oh, in the days in Hoboken, um, Italians were there was so much prejudice against Italians. People do not know that, but they they lynched more Italians in America, uh, maybe than any other ethnicity. And I'm not being facetious. You can look that up, um, you know, 11 at one time in, in, in New Orleans and in Frankfurt, Illinois and places like that. So there was so much prejudice that Frank's father fought under an Irish name, as most Italian fighters did, Marty O'Brien. Right. And then he later had so much popularity, he opened up a saloon in Hoboken called Marty O'Brien's Bar and Grill. And Frank used to sing in that saloon. They had a Nickelodeon, a, a piano roll, and sailors would put a nickel in there and give Frank a nickel. And he'd sing alongside the piano as a little boy. We're talking to Tom Dreesen. Tommy leaves the Navy, and then I'm trying to think, where do you go next? Uh, now you've got to get into the real world. Uh, were there opportunities affording themselves, or what occupation did you take up when you split the Navy, Tom? Well, when I came out of the Navy, I, I started wandering aimlessly again, and I started running with my, some of my old speed buddies, and, and I got married, had three kids, one, two, three, right up the other. I'm going from job to job. I, I, I was a private detective. I was a photographer. I, I was always a bartender at night. I ended up working on a loading dock. I became a teamster in Chicago with a bunch of tough guys, 48 tough guys on the dock from Cicero and real tough guys. And then I dropped my card and became management. Now I was managing. I was a foreman of these guys. It was a real experience. But anyhow, Mm -hmm. none of this was satisfying me. I joined a civic group called the JCs, the Junior Chamber of Commerce in those days. And it, it was leadership training program. And they taught us to attack problems in the community and by doing so, we would solve the problems of the community, but learn how to serve on a committee, how to chair a committee, et cetera. I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse uh, concept I had. Of, they weren't teaching drug abuse in those days um, uh, in colleges or high schools, let alone in elementary school. But I knew we had to get to the kids early. So I wrote this program, but it's based on humor. You make the kids laugh and uh, play records. And then once you've got them relaxed, you planted the seeds. Helping me with this project was a young black man named Tim Reed, sure. and he had just graduated from Norfolk State College, and E.I. DuPont recruited him into Chicago as a marketing rep. And he joined me, and the program became number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries. JCs use it as a model program on how to teach drug education uh, they, as a model program through their publications. Anyhow, one day a little eighth grade girl walking out of the classroom said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us. And we became America's first black and white comedy team 
from 1969 to 1975. And history shows we we're the last. And now Netflix might be doing a series on us, a six one hour series we're pitching about what life was like from 69 to 75. Race riots all over America, students protesting the Vietnam War. Not unlike it looks like right now, Dennis, mm-hmm. the world was going through this. And Tim and I were just trying to make people laugh. We did 11 prisons in one year. We did colleges, universities, anywhere there was racial tension, we went there and, and just tried to make people laugh. The great Tim Reed, who I guess I have to go back like an archaeologist and point out the younger people, the great Venus flytrap from WKRP in Cincinnati. And uh, funny chops, that cat, huh? He had great chops. More than that, he was on a show called Simon and Simon. He was on a show uh, recently called Sister, Sister. He played the father, a wonderful actor, and, and, and we're the best of friends to this day. What sort of circuit were you guys playing? I guess the Playboy Clubs were big back then. Did you ever do those? Yeah, we, we were on the Playboy Circuit for years, but before that, we played what they call the Chitlin Circuit, Black-owned, Black-operated nightclubs. Mm-hmm. The Sugar Shack in Boston, the 20 Grand in Detroit, the High Chaparral in Chicago, the Burning Spear, the Club Harlem in Atlantic City before they had gambling. There were no comedy clubs in those days. So we, we had to, you know, yeah. we, we really, we humped all around the country. And they got on the Playboy Circuit where there were 17 Playboy clubs and two resorts, Great Gorge and Lake Geneva. And we performed at them you do five, six shows a night. And that's when we really developed our timing and stuff. It was great. Yeah. Didn't they have the Laney? I remember Seinfeld coming back from Great Gorge one night when we were all just starting out and he waved a check for 175 that he picked up at the Laney Kazan room. Didn't they have a Laney Kazan room out there? That's right. That was the room that we work. Yeah. I wonder if he's got any money now, because if he doesn't, I can loan him. <laughs> the thing about the Chitlin circuit is that well, I remember I opened for Patty LaBelle once, and I said, "Patty, what do I tell me? What she was so cool? I said, what do I need to know about show business, sister?" And she said, "Always trade your wallet out from your street clothes to your stage clothes." <laughs> and I said, "I said I need to know that, Don." She said, "Yeah, that, you learn a lot on the Chitlin circuit." And so it, it was an authentic circuit. If you if you weren't getting laughs, they weren't going to give it to you because they wanted to mercy you, right? No question about it. I mean, we, you know, we, we there's great stories in the book. Tim and I wrote a book also called um, Tim and Tom, an American Comedy in Black and White. And that's what the series might be based on. But there's a lot of stories about, you know, at, at the Club Harlem, Dennis, you'll love this. In those days, in show business and nightclubs, you usually open on a Monday and close on a Saturday night at the Club Harlem in Atlantic City. This is before there was gambling there. Mm-hmm. They had the opening night was Saturday night. You did your first show at 10 o'clock at night. Your second show was two o'clock in the morning. Your third show was 6 a.m. in the morning called The Breakfast Show. And all the waiters <laughs> and the waitresses from all the all the area would come in and all the pimps would bring all their their, their lady mm-hmm. from Newark, from Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn, Manhattan. Uh, they'd bring them down for The Breakfast Show. 1,370 people jammed in that room. And, and it was a fascinating show. The, the show would open with Mama Lou Parks and her dancers, a heavy set black woman, and all these young kids who would do all the dances of the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, getting the audience rocking then a male singing group, then a female singing group, then comedy would be Tim and I, and then the headline would be Smokey or or The Temptations of the OJs or The, the Dallas from Harvey. Uh, Did you was, cross the great George Kirby's path on the on the road? Oh, many. George was from Chicago, you know, so I, I met him. Yeah, what a great guy. Yeah, yeah he was. Remember that, uh, Tommy, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. He used to kill me, George. Yeah. 
Yeah, those are the day. Those are. I would walk out. You know, the, the, the MC would say, "Y'all ready for some comedy? Are you ready for some comedy?" And yeah, we got a comedy team here. This team came all the way from Chicago. Welcome to the team of Tim and Tom. And Tim would walk out by himself, <laughs> and he'd say, "We're really happy to be here. You know, we just flew in, and uh, we, it's our first time in Atlantic City. And we were just walking around the other day on Kentucky Boulevard, and all of a sudden the crowd would say, "We." I don't see we, and slowly I would come out stage left and the light would hit me and I'd slowly <laughs> work my way to the crowd. The interloper. I would be kicking in the audience and I would finally get up to Tim. I'd walk, and Tim would say, where you been, man? I'd say, I don't see any of my people out there. And he'd look out and people would be roaring. He'd say, no, I don't think any of your people are out there. And I'd say, well, I'd hug Tim and i said, we better be funny. He said, what do you mean we? <laughs> oh, I wish I could have seen it, Tommy. I could just, nothing better than that seamless handoff timing between two pros. You guys must have been tight, right? After working it so hard. Man, I mean, to this day, you know, Tim, his children call me Uncle Tom, and that's another whole funny story. You know? <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. One time at Norfolk State College, we were doing a book tour, Tim and I, and his daughter, Tori, hadn't seen me for a year. And now she's a grown woman, and she was just a little, you know, I knew her before she was born, of course. But uh, she saw me, and she had. I was standing at a buffet. We were getting ready to speak to the students, but they had a buffet, and there were six black college professors and I getting our food. And Tori walked in the room and saw me and yelled across the room, Uncle Tom, Uncle Tom, Uncle Tom. And these six professors turned around and gave her a look, and I said, she, she's talking to me. You know, she's talking, and we went up and hugged you. Know. <laughs> oh, my God. Folks, uh, we're joined by Tom Dreesen. Can you hear these stories? Imagine how good this book is. Still standing, my journey from the streets, saloons, the stage uh, to the stage in Sinatra. Tom, I'm trying to think, do you and Tim take it out to L.A. together, or do you guys have to break off? Or would, tell me, Tell me how that segue happens. The team split up. A woman broke our act up and, and it broke my heart. It was like a broken marriage. I mean, I, I, you know, I had a wife and three kids and no, I've never been on stage alone. And, and, uh, and uh, it just broke my heart. He went out to the West Coast and, and uh, I, w I was sitting in a bar one night drinking beer like I used to love to drink beer. And I was thinking, what am I going to do? And I've always been good at options in my life. And I said, in the bar and I said, I could, my wife wanted me out of show business right now. She hated it, you know. And uh, I, I was sitting in the bar and I said, I thought I could either get another black guy and do the act that Tim and I had been doing for years, or I could go it alone as a stand up, or I could quit and get a job in a factory like my wife wanted me to do and forget, give up this dream of show business. And sitting there, I thought, I want to be a stand up. I could do it alone. I could do this. And I, I said, you know, and I, and I thought in those days, as you know, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of my mouth was, oh, yeah? You ever been on Johnny Carson? Mm -hmm. If you ever been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you weren't a comedian. You might want to be one. But, you know, so I focused. And, and sitting in the bar, I said, that's what I could do. I, I, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a stand-up. And I thought, I read a book many years ago by um, W. Clement Stone. He said, if you know what you want to do in your life, and if it's a noble endeavor, then search your life. And if there's anything in your life that can stop you from doing that, get it out of your life right now. And I thought the only thing that could stop me was I love to drink. So I pushed the two beers that I had in front of me and I said, I quit. And I never drank again. And I, my, my buddy came up, bartender, and he said, uh, you through for the night, Tommy? I said, I quit. He said, yeah, for the night. I said, no, I'm through. And I never touched another drop for years till after I was doing the Tonight Show and a lot of stuff. And then, then I didn't like it after the, so many years and I haven't had a drink since, you know. 
Well, listen, comedy's hard enough. Leno used to always tell me, brother, stay on the road because everybody else starts careening off. And uh, I always kind of adhered to the same thing. I wasn't a complete teetotaler, but I remember thinking, uh, if I stay lucid here, uh, I'm ahead of the curve. So you get to L.A., and I know your era, but I want the folks to hear it because I can just see J.J., and I can see the Jay and Young Letterman, uh, I guess, the, and Freddie, I guess. Those are the guys, right, when you get there at first? Sure. I, I, when I, I finally made it to the comedy store, <clears throat> and it took me a month to get on. I finally auditioned one night for Mitchie. I only had five minutes, and if I score, I could get on the regular schedule. If I don't score, it's back to Harvey, and it, the dream is over. Because that was the only game in town in those days. There was no improv in L.A. Mm-hmm. There was nothing, no Laugh Factory, nothing. So you had to get on that. And that and comedy was the rock and roll of the 70s. Every night I was on stage with these newcomers, David Letterman, Jay Leno, Robin Williams, uh, Gallagher, Elaine Boozler. Mm-hmm. The girl waiting tables was Deborah Winger. You know, we, we were just and, and, and I finally got on and and I, I worked my way into regular schedule after time. And I kept pestering the Tonight Show. Hester and Craig Tennis over there to come and see me. And one night he came, mm-hmm. he finally came, he gave in, he, he was looking at three acts that night, a comedy team called Baum and Eston, uh, a new kid named Billy Crystal and me. You know, I don't know whatever happened to Billy Crystal, but um, I think he's out there somewhere. But anyhow, and I, and I scored that night um, and, and they, they put me on, he said, you're on next week. And I got bumped. I went there, got put in makeup, brought down to the green room. And they bumped me. I came back next week. I put makeup up to my dressing room, back down to the gym. They bumped me. They bumped me three times in a row. The fourth time, I go into the makeup room, and Fred DeCordova comes in. And he said, I got bad news for you. And I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. <laughs> you you, well, you know, Dennis, you've been there. 26 million people used to watch that show. One appearance oh. on the Tonight Show, and Freddie Prince got a sitcom the next day. One appearance. I did one appearance on the Tonight Show. CBS signed me to a development deal the following day. Uh, it that, the day before you're in the unemployment line, that that showed the pressure. And those- I was always appreciative, though, Tommy, that the kingmaker was the king himself. You know what I mean? There's nothing worse than getting anointed by somebody who was weak cheese. But when Johnny Carson laughed at you, I have never felt more. I honest to God, it was like I dropped a niacin tablet or something. I got flushed in the face. I, I was so excited that I had made Carson laugh. Isn't it an amazing feeling? Oh, God. You know, I went through that curtain. Johnny. You know, I'm behind the curtain now, and the music stops, and your heart stops. You know, they were at a commercial break, and you hear Johnny say, "We're back now." And I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight because my next guest is making his first appearance on the Tonight Show. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. That one line that he does for newcomers: "I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight." Oh, it sets the tone, and they open that curtain, and you walk through in a bright light. It looks like you're in an operating room. You can't see the audience, and you hit your mark. Oh, man. And I got that first laugh out and then the second laugh and the third. And then the fourth laugh, I heard Johnny and Ed McMahon behind me laughing. And I was on a roll, man. I was on a roll. I did. I got like eight applause. I did my last. Oh, Tommy. Beautiful, baby. Oh, it was. I did my last line. Dennis. I said, you've been a wonderful audience. This is my first appearance on The Tonight Show. And show business is a tough life. So if you like me, just if you like me and you're Protestant, say a prayer. If you're Catholic, light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub. Tell them about me. Will you please? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tommy, 
they must have killed. And when I think about the Tonight Show, I think about that steep rake on the crowd. Uh, operating theater is a very apt descriptor because remember, Mrs. Miller was off to the right up there and uh, they'd have the thick rake. And you it, you just had to take a second. I don't know about you, the deep breath and just go, I can't believe I'm on the freaking Tonight Show. You look over, Freddie's there. Uh, Doc or Tommy's there, and it's just a maybe Skitch was there when you would. I was Skitch Henderson still the guy, or no, no, it, it was Doc Severinsen. It was Doc. It was it was December nineteen seventy five. Oh, okay. And then when I went through the curtain, Craig Tennis come running up. He said, "Go back, go back, go back." I said, "Go back and sit by Johnny." He said, "No, don't go sit by Johnny, but just go back." And I walked back through the curtain because they kept applauding, and Johnny gave me that little circle like he did with his fingers. You know, yeah, like you did good. I got to tell you, my whole life, Changes. I never stopped working. I did 61 appearances on The Tonight Show, but I never stopped working from that night on. Touring with Sammy Davis, touring with Smokey Robinson, touring with mm-hmm. um, you know Tony Orlando and Don, Mac Davis, Adley Cole, Gladys Knight and the Pips, and then finally to Frank. You know. Well, I'll tell you what, Tom, it, it, every time, I have never seen you when you were fledgling or not tight. That's the thing that must have struck them that night, is you could have walked out and within a few minutes i'm sure they were thinking well we got a substitute host if we ever need one just because you were always rock solid i never sensed a tremble in you you always were in killer mode man you know what i did i i, I teach young comedians this all the time too <clears throat> you know there's an old cliche act as if you are and you will be it's from a book i read and i wanted to be this calm stand-up comedian i wanted to look like i was enjoying every moment that this was that i was having fun and i wanted them to have fun so I began to image what that might be like. And then I acted as if I was. I tell young comedians all the time, when you walk out on that stage, no matter what you're feeling inside, no matter what's going on in your life, act as if you, if you want to be you know, solid and confident and have great stage presence, act as if you are. Mm-hmm. And you will, it'll eventually, you'll roll into that character. You know? And today, I, I can hardly wait to get out there. I love, I love making people. Yeah, you uh, you always rule the school, man. When you're out there, you take. Who was the actor? I think Spencer Tracy said, "Plant your feet and say your lines." And I always think of you going out there, and I think I'm with a pro here. This guy knows what he's doing. Zoom meetings with coworkers and clients are great till you notice those bags under your eyes and the deep wrinkles. Let me tell you, these cameras catch everything. Now imagine they're gone. No risky, expensive surgery, just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags all in the comfort of your own home. Plexiderm is the solution for Zoom meeting eyes. I know, I tried it, and I look like me, just 10 years younger. I'm blown away by the results. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be great on Zoom meetings or FaceTiming with friends. They'll sure be surprised when they see you this summer. The best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, and it lasts for hours, so nobody will know you're using it unless you tell them. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code MILLER for half off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm plus an additional $10 off. That's half off plus an extra $10 off. Or call 800-685-1292 and mention code MILLER. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com. Use code MILLER. Once again, that's code MILLER at triplexiderm.com. 
Still Standing is the book, Tom Dreesen, the author, My Journey from the Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. Obviously, the approbation of Carson meant everything to comedians of my era and, the, and Tom, you know, just a little before me. But then, uh, oddly enough, there's always the next guy, and Carson's always going to be the gold medal standard for me, but obviously the silver medal is a guy who at that point, you're probably, nobody quite knows it. They know he's got a quirky talent, but you and Letterman, I guess you'd spend your days playing racquetball and such. Yeah, we play racquetball, basketball. I, you know, I, I came off stage one night at the comedy store and Dave Letterman, it was his first night in LA and he had his red pickup truck and he was in the parking lot. When I walked out, he said, I really enjoyed your set, uh, Mr. Dreesen. You know, I said, oh, and he had a beard in those days, a little short red beard. But I said, oh, what is your name, Dave? I'm from Indianapolis. And I start talking sports. Gee, what baseball team did you root for? Indianapolis. I thought he might be a Cub fan, but he was a Cincinnati fan. Anyhow, I'm taking it to him because I'm so extroverted, not knowing what a recluse he is, you know, and had I known that, I would have respected that and given him some space. But by the time I realized that we were good friends, and by the way, Dennis, you're going to love this story. David Letterman calls me about a month ago and he said, Tom, every time I do a show and they ask me how we became friends or when you, they, you do a show and they ask you how you became friends, we tell the same story about going out and I was in the parking lot and, I, and we became friends. I said, yeah. He said, well, it's a boring story. I don't want you saying that anymore. I said, what do you think? He said, it's a boring story. He said, from now on, tell people you came off stage. I was in a parking lot and I had stolen some of your material and you beat the hell out of me in the parking lot. I said, no, why would I want to say that? He said, because it's a better story. Now, two weeks go by. He called me and he said, Tom, do you know the governor of Illinois? I said, I met him, but I don't know him. Why? He said, because my wife, Regina, has a, a friend who has an adult son who has autism in Chicago, and they these autistic adults plant food and they got a property there. They plant corn and beans and they raise it and then they give it to the homeless. And the state is going to take that property away. And I want to intervene if I can. I said, gee, I know the Senate Majority Leader, John Cullerton. I'll call him. I set him up with Dave. John said, tell Dave not to worry about it. He said, geez, we're, we're taking care of that right now. I said, John, would you talk to Dave? He said, yes. I said, John, do me a favor. When you talk to him and tell him you're going to help help him, tell him the reason you're helping him is because Dreesen beat the hell out of him in the parking lot. So John said, okay. Ten minutes later, Dennis, my phone rings. I said, hello, it's David. Didn't I tell you it's a better story? I told you it's a better story. Oh, my God. That is so hilarious. Don't tell him you're sorry about Dreesen beating the hell out of him in the parking lot. If I do, I will. Tom Dreesen with us. Isn't it funny? Now, listen, my love, I loved Robin with all my heart. He was a sweet guy, but he, his mind raced a lot, and he was shoveling coal into a very hot train engine. And while the Letterman story is composed, I think, didn't you and Mark meet each other when he had uh, accidentally, let's say, co-opted a joke or something? Yeah, you know, I, I worked at, uh, when after I did a couple Tonight Shows, I was working at the Newport Laugh Stop in Newport Beach. And my opening acts were a comedy team, Roger and Roger, a ventriloquist, Willie Tyler and Lester. Mm-hmm. I remember Willie. Uh, yeah. remember Willie, yeah. And, and, um, and a new kid named Robin Williams. And when I first saw the name Robin, I thought it was a girl. I said, oh, where is she from? The guy said, no, no, Tom, he's from San Francisco. You're going to love this kid. He's funny. He was brand new. He, he was the opening act. He was the, front, the first act. He did about uh, 15, 20 minutes, and I, I mean, he floored me. I, geez, this guy's from another planet. Yeah, it was, a di- it was a different thing than you'd ever seen. I remember when I first saw him, I thought, wow, that's, uh, that's different. You know, he couldn't do a six-minute stand-up on a Tonight Show. He never did that, or on Merv Griffin or something. He could do an hour, 
but you couldn't confine that talent into one five minute or six minute slot Mm -hmm. because he was all over the place, you know, and he was so funny. But anyhow, we became friends and we were the best of friends. And and I I love Robin. And then he got that show, Mork and Mindy. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that show, he would do a monologue to Orc to Outer Space. And one night he did one of my jokes. My phone rang and all my buddies said, hey, Tom, uh, Robin did that joke you do. It was a silly, stupid joke or whatever. So I go over to the Laugh Factory to, I mean, to, I'm sorry, to the comedy store to tell him this. And I'm going backstage and the security guard tried to stop me. They just put a new security on. We got into a big argument and it's in, in I mean, words, you know. <laughs> so now I get backstage funny and, and, um, and I tell Robin, you know, Robin, you lifted one of my jokes. And he said, oh, oh, I'm so sorry, Tom. I'm so sorry. He said, look, I'll pay you. I said, no, I don't want any money for the joke. I'm just telling you now I can't do it because you just put it out in front of like 30 million people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people are going to say, oh, you took that from Robin. But we, you know, it got into the National Enquirer that I got into a physical confrontation with Robin. It was not with him. It was with the security guard, you know. And uh, anyhow, <laughs> there was never anyone like him. You know, never. Yeah, he was a sweet soul. There are times I'd be with him and I'd think uh, he would revert back to that. Uh, you could see the kid playing with soldiers alone up in the attic. There were times he was so wistful and young. There were other times when you were on your sixth gig of the night when you'd go out in L.A. with him and hit six clubs. And you'd think, this guy's a grinder. And then there were other times I could see him over there noodling in his own head. And I'd think uh, this was a kid who played alone a lot when he was young, right? Yeah, he was, you know, you know, I hate to say this, but this is my opinion. And there's no fact to this. 85% of all stand-up comedians I've met in my life are insecure, neurotic, sometimes psychotic, loved, starved wrecks. And the other 15% are gifted, confident people who say, I know how to write a joke and I know how to tell one. And and, uh, I like to think that I'm in the latter, but never trust somebody who tells you they're sane. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, Seinfeld, I, from the first moment I met Seinfeld, before he was Jerry, he was rocks. Just, <laughs> I remember saying to him, Jerry, I just did a cruise. I did a cruise to the Caribbean. I made 800 bucks for the weekend. You ought to try it. This was unknown Jerry. He says, uh, you know, I've never felt the need to vacation with my audience. Like from the get-go, he had that attitude. He's always rock solid. So I agree with it. I'd probably state it a little higher. I'd probably go a third, two-thirds. But I know what you mean. There are times you're with cats and you just shake your head and go, boy, the only piece they have is the moments they're on stage. But I, I've, I've probably met the one out of three who uh, pretty either normal or very assured of themselves. You know, it's funny to me when we talk, we talk, we can talk about such young comedians uh, who are coming into their own, becoming the vanguard of comedy when you got to LA. But isn't it funny, Tom, that you always get yielded up to the previous generation. And it is a closed club in a way where comedians respect comedians because they know how difficult it is. And you end up coming across legends yourself. I remember meeting George Burns the first time and thinking, wow, he's giving me knowledge. I think you were with his crony, Jack Benny. Didn't Jack give you great advice somewhere along the way? Yeah, years ago, he told me, I met him when I was brand new. And he said, when you walk out on that first appearance on The Tonight Show, now The Tonight Show was the furthest thing from my dream. That was years away. But he said, don't walk out and tell them about the government or the airlines. Do six minutes about you, where you're from, mm-hmm. your parents, your childhood, your sisters. So when you walk off with a lot of laughter, they know something. You left part of you out there. He said, later, you can, when you're established, you can walk out. Mm-hmm. But when you're brand new, do your first six to 10 minutes about where you're from and, and your background. He said, it, it introduces yourself to strangers yes. with laughter, you know. And George, I'll take this to my grave. <laughs> I, I was 
working at Harris in Lake Tahoe, and I had I had done the Dean Martin roast uh, and and met George Burns and roasted George Burns and became friends with George and his manager Irving Fine, who also was Jack Benny's manager at one time. But I, I George one time was at he was at Caesars in Lake Tahoe. He was ninety five years old. I was working at Harris, and I rushed over to catch George's show. Ninety five years old. He didn't run out to the microphone, but when he got out there, he did a strong hour and ten minutes. So I go backstage afterward, and I'm gonna say hello to him and he's in the dressing room and he's looking at some cards, some notes. And I said, Hey George, how you doing? And he looked up from the notes. He said, Oh, hi, Tommy. He said, I was working on some new material tonight. <laughs> I said, Unbelievable. That's what I want to be. I want to be 95 years old working on new material. That's my goal. You know? I saw George with a Julie Newmar type showgirl one night in Atlantic City. She was so statuesque, so beautiful, so doe-eyed. George is standing next to her. At this point, he's starting to get shorter than he is taller. You know, he's winnowing down. He's got the cigar, the tucks on. I look at him and go, hey, George, he looks at me. He looks up at her. He says, don't ask. (laughs) 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 I, I almost died. I laughed so hard. You know the great line about him at 95, and this is a true story, Caesar's Palace offered him a five-year contract, and he turned it down. He said because he wasn't sure Caesar's would be around in five years. <laughs> oh, those old guys just killed, well, old guy, I don't know, they were young killers at one point, and then they became avuncular older guys, but man, the funnies, and the people you're out on the road with, when you were ticking people off earlier, Smokey, one of my idols, Liza, Natalie, great experiences on the road, huh, Tom? You'll have those forever. Oh, forever. Yeah. You know, and, and, and a philosopher once said, in the end, all you have are memories. So make some good ones. Mm-hmm. And, and he's right. you know, Frank Sinatra on his 82nd birthday, and it's in the book, but on his 82nd birthday, we were all over the house to see him, a lot of his friends. And uh, they, they, Frank, we weren't sure was quite with us. He died five months later and he had in days and out days. And sometimes we weren't sure he was with us, but we were all sitting around. We had dinner. We we're waiting for the cake to come out. And Frank was off to the side. And we were sitting at a round table and he was sitting off to the side, not well. And somebody said, gee, where's the best place to live? And Gregory Peck said, well, Veronique and I have a villa in France and we like it there. And Robert Wagner and Joe St. John said, we have a place in Aspen and we like it there. And Frank, with his head down, off to the side, said, the best place to live is where your friends are. And we all went, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. My point of this story is, here's a guy, arguably the greatest career show business has ever known. Academy Awards, Grammys, mm-hmm. and, and all those things, master fortune. In the end, it wasn't about any of those things. It was about relationships, friendships. Yeah, and he had some intricate ones. Uh, you know, when I think about, listen, the, those guys played rough. You watch the old Rat Pack stuff. There's an old, uh, folks, I encourage you, if you want to see a Rat Pack thing, there's a St. Louis Hospital benefit where I, I don't think, I think Joey can't make it. It's the only good footage I've seen of the Rat Pack. Now, young Carson comes in. You remember that great line, Tom, where he says Joey couldn't make it tonight. He hurt his back bowing out of Frank's presence. But anyway, <laughs> there's uh, there's great old footage. They played rough, but when it came time to walk the walk, I know you were with Sammy for, I think, three to five years on the road. He stepped up for Sammy on that. Uh, if Sammy wasn't staying in the hotel, he wasn't performing, right? Uh, Frank was way before his time in that. You know, well, he, the, the house I live in, he received the Academy Award for that, right. for anti-Semitism. And, and, uh, and you know, uh, Frank Frank told me the story, how he met Sammy. He said he went down to Harlem. Frank was working in a theater in, in Manhattan. And he went to Harlem. He heard about this Will Maston trio right. way back 
day. And Frank went to Harlem and he said, this kid, Sammy Davis, just rocked the room, just rocked the room totally. He's, he went backstage and Sammy was so enamored with Frank. And, and Frank said, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed your performance. And he said, oh, Frank, you know, for you to come and see my show. And Frank said, come and see my show. And Frank he said, okay. And about a week and a half goes by. And Frank said that he went back to Harlem to see Sammy's show. And he saw it again. And he went backstage and he told Sammy, you know, I'm a little ticked at you. I've seen your show twice now and you haven't seen mine once. And Sammy said, Frank, I went there. They wouldn't let me in. Oh. And Frank said, what? He said, they wouldn't let me in. Frank went back and went to the manager's office and ripped his contract up and said, kiss my, you know what? And I'm out of here. And, uh, and, and Sammy, Sammy told other stories when I toured with Sammy. He thought the world of Frank. By the way, there's a great story in the book. It's too long to elaborate now. But when I was touring with Sammy, I had not met Frank at the time. And Sammy called me and he said, hey, let's go into Caesars a day early. We used to go opening day. And mm -hmm. he said, Frank's, Frank's closing. And Frank Sinatra had not talked to Sammy for four years because Sammy was doing a little blow. And Frank didn't like that. Yeah, he didn't dig the drugs. And Frank quit talking to him. And so the girls, Altavish, Sammy's wife, and Barbara Sinatra got, mm -hmm. got them together. So they, they, Sammy said, come in. Uh, and I came in uh, early that night and I went to the show. Sammy and Frank and the girls went to dinner. And afterward, we came, went and watched Frank's last show. And I, I won't tell you anymore because it's too long. But amazing thing happened that night. Well, to Tommy, well, are, unless you do you have to go? You're being so kind with your time because I'm a pig in slop, man. I love the please take your time. This is what do you mean? Uh, do you mind telling the story? Yeah, sure. I'll tell you. I, I thought you were short time. No, I'm, I'm here for two days. If you want me. <laughs> no, no. I, lo I love this stuff, man. Please fill me in on the story. Well, Sammy, Sammy said, Tommy, you know, come, come in because the girls got us together. So I fly into Vegas the night before, before we open. And, and I check into my room. I go straight down and I go sit at Sammy's table down front. And, and Sammy's staff is there. Shirley Rhodes is there. George Rhodes is there. Mm -hmm. And all those people. Now, we're waiting. Here comes Sammy. And he's excited. He's just trembling. He said, Frank and I made up, baby. You saw he's calling me baby. He said, Frank and I made up, babe. We made up. He said, the girls got us together. And Sammy was drinking a lot because he was so nervous. about. He said, yeah, we had a couple bottles of wine. And oh, He said, uh, I'm so excited now. He said, I'm going to jump up and do a song with Frank. Mm. And I said, oh, wow. So when they get almost to the end of the show and Frank starts singing ladies a tramp, she gets too hungry for dinner at eight. Boom. Sammy jumps up on top of the table, runs on the stage. The crowd goes wild. Mm -hmm. they, they, Sammy grabs a microphone and him and Frank do that number and bring the house down. I can imagine. Bring the house down. You know, now, meanwhile, Frank, Frank does his next song, closes, goes home. The place is mobbed. We're going to go out and the bodyguard his name was Dwayne. he said to sammy he said mr d i don't think you should go through this crowd you'll never get out of here they now know you're here let's go to the kitchen at caesar's now we're going to the kitchen and i'm not drinking i'm sober everybody's loaded now i'm going through the kitchen and and i'm in front of the entourage we're going to go to sammy's suite out in front of me is a black waiter with his back to me and he in those days they serve food at caesar's he's yelling to a white waiter to bring up the meat, they have all these steaks on these big racks with trays. Mm -hmm. He doesn't see what's behind him. He yells, hey, Al, Al, bring up the meat, bring up the meat. When he, Sammy jumps up in front of this guy and said, who the F are you calling buckwheat? You know, <laughs> the guy turns around and says, what? And, and he said, who the F are you calling buckwheat? Now, all the crew is getting around and saying, what happened? He called Sammy buckwheat. He, what? He called Sammy buckwheat. What? Now, they're, they're, you know, they, some of these guys got guns are reaching for their stuff, you know, and I'm going, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, Sammy, 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 he didn't say that. 
he, he didn't call you that. No, Sammy looked at me. He had a lot to drink. And, and you know, Sammy and I were real close. I mean, we had such a great relationship. But he was super loaded, right? Obviously super loaded. Oh, yeah. He was really loaded. He, he had his hat cocked ace deuce, and he looked at me with that one eye, and he didn't say anything, and they walked out of the kitchen. Now, I go to my room. Shirley Rhodes calls me and said, Tom, Sammy wants you to come down to the suite. I said, you know, I don't think this is a good night, Shirley. I think <laughs> I'll bow out on it because I've been around drinkers my whole life. Sure. She said, no, everything is cool. I get up to the suite. I sit with Murphy Bennett at the end of the room as road manager. And Sammy works his way around to me. Now he says to me, he sits at the bar. And whenever Sam, Sammy knew I grew up in an all-black neighborhood, all that's in the book, too. I used to do routines about playing on an all-black basketball team, about the black guys I grew up. And that's why Sammy hired me. He saw me do that routine on his show. So Sammy knew I grew up around a lot of the brothers. So whenever he mm -hmm. got along with me, he started talking to me like we're back in the streets. So Sammy said, let me see if I get this straight now. Let me see. You know, I'm the brother that pays you. And uh, you sick of a brother in the kitchen, you don't even know who he is. Now, explain that to me. Will you explain that to me? You know, we were, you know I said, Sammy, he did. And I could not get the word buckwheat out of my mouth. Every time I'm looking, I'm looking at the great Sammy Davis Jr. And I said, Sammy, he didn't call you. And when I, I broke, maybe nerves, I couldn't stop laughing. Mm -hmm. And I looked the other way and I come back. I said, Sammy, he did not call you. And I, I'd break into laughter. And Sammy is not enjoying this at all. <clears throat> Finally, <clears throat> I got it out. He didn't call you that. Sammy walks away. Next day for the show, Sammy comes in my dressing room and said, run it by me, babe. What happened? And I told him, I said, the guy was yelling, Al, bring up the meat. He didn't call you. Mm -hmm. Sammy said, wow, I was wrong, huh? Babe, I said, yeah. He said, do you know who the guy is? I said, yeah. We go, we go into the kitchen. The kitchen was just off a of stage left. So we go in there and I find the guy. And I, I tell him, Mr. Davis wants to talk to you. And Sammy said, Tommy says, I owe you an apology. I'm so sorry for my behavior last night. He said, I had too much to drink. And the, and the black guy was saying, he said, Mr. Davis, my mom is from Cleveland. When I told her you were coming here, she said, make sure you watch him. He's the greatest entertainer of our time. He said that you would think that I would call you that. I couldn't sleep all last night. Sammy said, I am so sorry for this. And he hugged the guy. Mm. Next day, Sammy's secretary brought me a box and said, Sammy wants you to give this to the guy. I take him the box in the kitchen. He opens it up. It's a Rolex watch. He gave the guy a Rolex watch. Now I go into the dressing room. Sammy's all alone getting makeup on. He put makeup on for the show. I said, uh, let me see if I understand this. If I call you, <laughs> I get me one of them uh, Rolex watches. He said, yeah, you're going to need to know what time the next bus leaves for Harvey. <laughs> Sammy was wild with the gifts, man. He's like Joe Bologna in my favorite year. Get him some tires. I remember one night Franklin dug his watch on Sammy and Company, the great Franklin Ajay, who folks, if you I know you know him from Deadwood. If you never saw his stand up, just the stone killer stand up with a beautiful laconic rhythm. And uh Sammy took the watch off and laid it on him. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, by the way, Frank was that way. You could not say to Frank Sinatra, gee, that's a nice watch. He'd take it off and give it to you. You couldn't say, what a beautiful painting, Frank. He'd take it off the wall and hand it to you. His friends had to be very careful around him. We're coming out of Waldorf Astoria one night on our way to a gig, and a woman was hiding in the doorway. The doorman told me she'd been hiding there for five hours. We went out the back because he'd be mobbed going out the front. She's yelling, Mr. Sinatra, please, Mr. Sinatra, please. And he was getting in the limo, and she's yelling, please. And security was holding her back. Finally, Frank got out and he went back and he said, what is it? She said, my husband is home ill. He's very ill. If you would sign him an autograph, it would mean the world to him. Frank said, sure. And he's signing the autograph and she said, oh, what beautiful cufflinks. They were very, very expensive, over a thousand dollar cufflinks. I know where he got them at. So 
So he, he said, thank you. He, she said, what beautiful cufflinks. He signed the autograph. He took the cufflinks off. He handed them and said, give these to your husband. And she said, oh, no, I didn't want them. I just was admiring them. He said, I want your husband to have them. He, we get in a limo. I said, Frank, that's beautiful. But why did you do that? He said, Tommy, if you possess something that you can't give away, then you don't possess it. It possesses you. Wow. How that, uh... I never forgot that. He said, you know, and he told me one time, he said, it's okay if somebody says, gee, I like your Mercedes Benz and you don't give it to them. But when you're alone in the bathroom shaving and you're looking at that guy in the mirror, you got to admit to that guy, that car owns you because you can't give it away. Hmm. And I never forgot. You know? Well, listen, you know, to me in the history of show business, it's the Beatles and Frank and they're a quartet. Uh, and then there's Frank alone. Uh, he's the greatest singer I've ever seen in my life that he bowls me over consistently now way after his death whenever I'm just listening to the Sinatra channel who bowled him over as a singer Tommy who who blew his mind he, he liked Tony Bennett he would often one, one night we were in Fort Lauderdale we flew in from doing some one-nighters and uh, we went to a restaurant about two o'clock in the morning and they set gave him a glass of wine and a dish of pasta and then Tony Bennett was singing on the CD above and he said to me Tommy does it get any better than this he said uh, a glass of wine, a dish of pasta, and my main man is up there singing to us, you know. Hmm. So he, he liked Tony Bennett, but you cannot describe why he was the greatest pop singer of all time because there were so many reasons. But one of the simplest reasons was we forget what a brilliant actor he was. He won the Academy Award hmm. in, from here to eternity, but forget about that. What about the man with the golden arm? What about the man Kennedy? Hmm. Sitting around with him one night with Kirk Douglas, Clint Eastwood, um, in Frank's backyard with Gregory Peck, Robert Wagner, all these wonderful actors. They were showing such great reverence to Frank Sinatra. And I, and I was fascinated. And I said, I was curious who you studied with. I said, Frank, who did you study acting with? Did you study acting? And Gregory Peck grabbed my arm and said, acting lessons would have ruined him. He was a diamond in a rough you didn't fool with. When you gave Frank Sinatra a song, to him it was a script. What did the writer feel the night the writer took pen in hand? Frank would immerse himself in the lyric and become that lonely guy in a bar whose woman left him and he's never going to find love again. And you mm. felt that when he sang that and you felt the joy of his songs. Come fly with me. You know, he, he was, the, he is truly the greatest pop singer of all time, but we've, we've. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Not the not even debatable. Shut that down. Right. Yeah. Shut that debate down. It's Frank Sinatra. And then there's the uh, rest. Boy, you wrote it all the way into the barn with your dear friend, Tom. I think, uh, you emceed Frank's funeral, did you? I can't imagine what that meant to a boy from Chicago. And I was a pallbearer. And, and I tell you, waiting to go up and speak at that lectern, you know, and this sounds like humble BS, but it's, it's truly how I feel, Dennis. My whole life, no matter where I go, no matter what I was doing, no matter where I was at, emceeing events on Ellis Island where my ancestors came, mm -hmm. you know, opening for Frank Sinatra, all these wonderful things have happened to me. If I close my eyes, I see a little boy with a shine box walking through the snow, going from bar to bar, trying to make money to feed his brothers and sisters. I'm only a heartbeat away from that kid. That's who I am. So there I was at Frank Sinatra's funeral, and I'm about to go out, and, and, and everybody who was anybody in the world was in that church. And, the, the, and now I got to go out. Jesus. And I saw this little kid on his hands and knees, shining shoes in bars, and Frank was on the jukebox singing. And now I'm going to talk to the audience about him. And I'm also going to wow. get his coffin out of the church. It was, wow. it was hard to describe what emotions I was going through. I'm getting, I'm getting goose flesh listening to it and a little teared up. I mean, it must've been overwhelming. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, first of all, 
before I went on, all I could think about was Frank, every night before I'd go on stage, Frank would say, Tommy, are you going on? I'd walk by the dressing room. He'd say, you're going on? I'd say, yeah. He'd say, be funny and be brief. (laughs) (laughs) So I was thinking he would want me to make them laugh. And I mean, the church, they just sang after after communion, they sang Ave Maria. Everybody was, when you're at one funeral, it reminds you of all the other funerals you've been to, my parents and everything. And I'm getting emotional, but I'm saying, Frank he, Frank once said to me, right. I'm half Sicilian. I'm Irish and, and, and Sicilian. He said, Tommy, Sicilians don't cry in public. They cry alone. And I said, but I'm half Irish. He said, well, Irish cry when they change bus drivers. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm thinking, I know he wants me to be funny, you know, so. Now, now after the Ave Maria is done, I look at the priest and he motions me to stay where I'm at. And over the loudspeaker, the church was so silent, you could hear the pews crackling. Over the loudspeaker comes Frank Sinatra's voice, put your dreams away for another. Mm-hmm. And it was a signature song on his TV show. The whole church burst into tears. Now I'm facing them. They're sobbing. You know, uh, it, it, Barbara Sinatra, Nancy, his first wife, and Mia were sitting together. Ava had passed away, of course. Mm. But he, the, the the children, everybody, you know, uh, Victor Moan and, and Tony Bennett and, and James there and all my friends sitting up front and they're all sobbing. And and uh, I, I and I, now I got to walk out there after the song's over and make them laugh. So I, I told a funny story. I walked out and I said, all of you know that Frank Sinatra stayed up till dawn. All of you know out in the church, a lot of you had to stay up with him. And I did for all those years that I toured with him. And he wanted you to hang with him till the sun came up. He was nocturnal. I said, one night we landed in Fort Lauderdale. We were going to do the Sunrise Theater, but we're doing three one-nighters, one in Daytona, one in Sarasota, and one in Fort Myers. But the first night we had off. And I wanted to play golf in the morning, so the squad cars and limousines rushed us to the hotel. Frank goes straight into the lounge. I snuck up to my room. I said, great, I'm going to get to play golf in the morning. I'm in my room five minutes, pounding on the door. I opened the door, a big redheaded bellman, looked like a linebacker from the Miami Dolphins, big guy. He said, Mr. Dreesen, Mr. Sinatra wants you downstairs in the lounge. And I reached in my pocket, I pulled out $20 and I handed it to him. I said, tell him that you couldn't find me. He said, he backed up. He said, Mr. Dreesen, Mr. Sinatra gave me $100 to tell you he wants you downstairs in the lounge. <laughs> now the whole church burst into laughter, you know, laughing. And I said to the guy, couldn't you tell him? He said, he said, you might resist. And if I had to drag you down there, he'd give me $200. <laughs> You're going, you skinny little Sicilian. You're going down. Oh, Tommy. But I went down there, he, he patted me on the cheek. Must have brought the house down. Oh, yeah. The church, I think they needed to laugh at that time. I think they just needed it. Yeah. Tommy, isn't it isn't it funny that you end up, you, you and Tim start off, you're doing the breakfast show on the Chitlin Circuit up at dawn, and here it is, you go full circle through one of the most amazing comedy careers of our time, and you end up at dawn with the greatest entertainer of all time. Boy, what a what a trip. What stories? You got to put this on stage, Tom. Are you doing a one man show with it, or tell me? Yeah, I am. I, I do a one man show called "The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh." You know, and uh, the other day I did a Zoom thing, and hundreds of people signed up, and I and I told stories like this, but I answered their questions. They asked me, you know, how did you meet Frank, and what was the the toughest performance you ever had to do, and so forth and so on. And and I had stories for all their questions, and I was supposed to do ninety minutes. I ended up doing two hours. You know, it's been. A- Right. Wow, wow, wow. Well, listen, I can uh, I can understand because you got the 
you have the easy lope, man. It's always interesting and it's always rhythmic to me. I could listen. I fall into the cadence. I love the inside stuff. It's your piece of work, Tommy. And you know what else you share with Sinatra? Good-hearted cat, man. I know that you do a lot of charity work. Uh, I think you have. Tell me about this day for Darlene. I'm not quite sure what that is. What facet of that overall charity work is day for Darlene? My sister Darlene, uh, we had eight kids in the family. She was 18 months older than me. Mm-hmm. And uh, mom and dad both, my mom worked in a bar. She was a bartender. And my old man drank all the time. And they were out on the streets, you know, a lot, laying, staying out late at night. And Darlene became like a surrogate mom. She just took care of us kids. And she was only 18 months older than me. But she always looked after me. And she was the sweetest, kindest, nicest girl. She went to church every morning with the mass. I was an altar boy, so I'd go with her, but she'd go six out of seven days. You know, she'd go to church. She just was a good, good human being. And when she was 24, she was stricken with multiple sclerosis. Mm. And it took her from a cane to a walker to the wheelchair until she was bedridden. And uh, anyway, I, I, every year I would run 26 miles uh, for, for multiple sclerosis. I'd call it 26 miles for Darlene. And people would pledge money for every mile I run. And uh, I'd bring all these celebrities in with me, you know, Frankie Valley and Frankie Avalon and, and, uh, and the Smokey Robinson and, and Eddie Marinaro and, and uh, uh, God, I, I'm, I'm going to leave people. Every year I'd bring in all these tons of mm-hmm. celebrities, Robert Conrad and Tony Danza, and, and they would run part of the way with me. Smokey's the only one who ran all 26 miles with me. He's my buddy. He's my heart and soul buddy. But anyhow, so if he ran 26 miles with you. I can say that Smokey was not a smoker, ironically. <laughs> and that's for sure. Uh, but anyhow, so, so we dedicated that day to Darlene. She has since passed away. And so I, I, I continue to do all kinds of charity shows. I, you know, Frank, one time we were in Chicago working in the Chicago Theater in my hometown. You know, I used to have my shoe shine box. I would take the train down there and try to shine shoes a little bit down there by the Chicago Theater because they, they tip better down there, you know. And uh, now here I am. I'm, I'm on the marquee with Frank Sinatra and, and I'm appearing there. But he, we were at a restaurant afterward at Gibson Steakhouse. And a woman walked up and she said, to, did, she interrupted Frank and she said, excuse me, Mr. Snatter, but Tommy, I want to tell you that I run in your marathon every year. And, and I think it's for a good cause because my niece has multiple sclerosis. Anyway, she walks away and Frank said, what was that all about? And I tell him this story I just told you about running. Mm-hmm. He said, I said, you should run with me. And he said, yeah, I don't run. He said, I ride a stationary bike. And then he wrote a note. On a, he's writing on a, on a napkin. He said, let's get a camera crew together. I got an idea. And this was his idea. And it's on the Internet. You can find it. He's on a stationary bike riding it. And he says, my good friend Tom Dreesen runs 26 miles every year. And I'm running alongside him on a stationary bike. And I'm naming all the people who are going to be there. And Frank is going to, Frank is saying dialogue. And at the end, I, I'm r- running and I'm saying, Frank, are you going to run with me? He said, are you kidding me? I can hardly ride this thing, you know, the stationary bike. <laughs> but, but, but he did that for me. And afterward, I said to him, I can't thank you enough. He said, Tommy, stop it. I said, no, I, you know, Frank, as busy as you are, he said, Tommy, we do these kind of things for strangers all the time. Why wouldn't we do them for friends? And I said, well, you know, I, I know you're busy and I didn't want to impose. He said, Tommy, friends are never an imposition. If you're my friend, you can't possibly impose upon me. I never forgot that lesson either. Wow. What a tale. What a tale you've got to tell, Tom. And let me say this. In addition to all the other facets of this, I find fascinating. Nobody lived the hell out of Tom Dreesen's life more than Tom Dreesen did. <laughs> you took a big bite. You enjoyed it. There were the ups and the downs. I know I'm, it sounds like I'm singing the lyrics for my way. But, man, I, I when I talk to you, I always think this is a man in full. This is a guy who took a big bite out of it. And uh, I don't know. I find it fascinating. I find you. Uh, I just could listen to it all day, Tom. And uh, we appreciate your time today, my friend. 
as Frank Sinatra sang, the very last song he ever sang on stage is The Best is Yet to Come. And that's on his tombstone, The Best is Yet to Come, Francis Albert Sinatra. And so you're right. You know, there's a lot of my way in my in my life, but there's also it isn't over. The best is yet to come. All right. Tommy, good to talk to you, brother. And I'm proud to be a comic when I talk to you. It's, an, it's a cool club and it's nice to meet cats like you. Take care. Well, thank you, Dennis. And you know, I'm a big fan. I've told you for years, no one, no one structures a joke the way no one in show business has ever structured jokes like you do. You're brilliant ah. at your joke structure. I've never seen you like it, really. Boy, that means so much to me. <laughs> thank you. I'm going to go get choked up. Thank you, brother. I'll talk at you. Hi, Dennis. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. All right. The great Tom Dreesen. And uh, whew, I know Christian and I had had a dust up last week when you were telling me you felt that uh, I structured jokes in a shitty manner. And I hope that shuts you up, Baba Louie. Yeah. Well, look, somebody with some talent feels otherwise. So uh, I sit corrected. You're good to listen to Tom. Hey, by the way, have you watched the Lance Armstrong documentary? I have not seen it yet, but uh, I am planning to make time for it. Oh, please do yourself a favor. I watched the Epstein documentary and the uh, Lance Armstrong back to back this weekend. And it would be a disservice to Lance Armstrong. So he's in there with that guy, Satanic Epstein. But they both are like narcissists. They share that. And the Lance Armstrong thing is so weird to watch. It's only four hours, but you're, you, you, you alternatingly uh, are repulsed by him and how brutal he is. And then you can see how he would charm people because he'd say something uh, illuminative. And then you'd realize he's just manipulating you. And it, it, it just points out to you that the human condition makes uh, Lombard Street in San Francisco look like the fall line at a ski resort or something. It is uh, he, it's so many back and forth. I can't say the Epstein one you just watch and you you literally get to the point where you're thinking you hate him so much in your head that you don't like to hate. And then you, you ask for some sort of insight from the gods or from the universe to not hate, but you can't bring yourself to because he really was a monster. He and that Jelaine woman are monsters. And then you go over and you do the other one and you just realize, boy, the humans are, uh, I don't even to say multifaceted is uh, to do a disservice it's the whole spectrum. I, I know that's somebody calling from Glossary Central telling me to get my words together. Pick it up, Christian, and tell them <laughs> you'll be right with them. I know. Uh, by the way, Tom uh, Dreesen called in. He's shooting a remake of Soylent Green. and uh, That's why you heard all the beeping and that there. Packing. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, watch that documentary because it's so funny. Just when you're hating him, he'll say something that makes you... Uh, I don't, I don't even want to say laugh because you feel guilty. But after the Epstein one, you are back on to just human foible, narcissist, sociopath ground. Whereas, you know, when you're in the Epstein one, it's just gobsmack Beelzebubville. But uh, Armstrong is so candid about it. Uh, give it a watch, Christian. I'll be interested to hear what you say. And uh, I remember meeting Lance, Bennett, you know, with Robin over the years, he and Robin and he was a smooth operator, man. I guess he could just charm you and make you not see what was right in front of you. But it's like somebody in the thing says, uh, you know, to use having st stage four cancer and losing a testicle as a uh, leaping off point to win the longest, hardest bicycle race in the world. It probably everybody should have known what was up. <laughs> it's just true when you look at things in hindsight. <laughs> Yeah, well, I didn't win it before then, but then I got cancer, 
almost died, lost a, and somebody said, uh, you know, I put up on the uh, Facebook that you should watch this Lance Armstrong thing. It's pretty fascinating. And, uh, and then, then somebody put, the first commenter was, Lance Armstrong was a nut. Literally. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's my kind of comedy, Sammy. <laughs> so that's his whole life now. For the rest of time, that's I love the, that. Those are the jokes that he has to side off to, which is his own form of abject contrition. Anyway, give it a watch. Good to talk to you all today, and I hope you enjoyed Tom Dreesen. This is the Dennis Miller Option. Thanks for listening to the Dennis Miller Option, exclusively on Westwood One. Tune in to new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday on the Westwood One app, westwoodone.com, and on Apple Podcasts. And remember to rate, review, and share. Until next time, that's the show, and we are out of here. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.